0: Uh, But for us, we're going to be in Acts 19. Uh, And uh, just remember that just where we are, Paul is going around the Mediterranean Sea region, and uh, for this week, he's going to end up in the city of Ephesus. And if you know anything about the New Testament, you know that Ephesus is an incredibly crucial city to the advancement of the gospel. Uh, Paul writes the letter to the Ephesians, and it's back to these people. Uh, This is one of the churches that Jesus... Jesus actually speaks to and addresses in the book of Revelation, the first few chapters of Revelation. He speaks to the church of Ephesus. Uh, and the city at this time was a commercial center of that region. Uh, it, was, it was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. Uh, it, was, it was a great city. Uh, you know, its own inscriptions called it, uh, and, and um, archaeologists have found this, that it ter- termed itself the first and greatest metropolis of Asia, um, so they didn't—they uh, didn't lack in any kind of uh, pride uh, for their city as well. Populations in this time, first century, was probably. Between 200,000 and 400,000 people lived in Ephesus. It was a sizable place, especially in the first century. Uh, and uh, we're going to look at next week, uh, the second part of this passage, where Paul is actually brought into this amphitheater, and we think, you know, maybe Irmo Park, but picture a 25,000-seat stadium, and that's what they had for different performances or different uh, uh, gladiator battles. I mean, it was an impressive place. And so Paul is going back. He's actually stopped off at Ephesus once. He's going back there. And so what uh, will God do during this time? We're going to look at the first 20 verses of Acts 19. Uh, Again, God is speaking. This is his word given to us by the power of the Spirit. Would you join me in standing as we just express our submission to his word. He speaks and we long to hear from him. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, The Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying, and there were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue, and he being Paul, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation... He withdrew from them and took to the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks." By by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Well, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit... Uh, who was the evil spirit, leapt on them, mastering all of them and overpowering them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found, it, found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now let's pray. God, would you, by your spirit, the same spirit uh, that rules And is more powerful than uh, even the demons of the evil forces. The spirit that is powerful to make hearts alive. Father, I pray that that same same power of the spirit would be in our midst. God, would you accomplish much through your word as we look at it, study it, sit under it. Uh, Father, thank you that it changes us. And we pray that we would see that this morning. we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. If you're one who uh, maybe struggles to understand what spiritual growth looks like or how it works in your life, uh, let me submit to you that if you're struggling to see that or haven't seen it in a a profound way, uh, I want you to go out and work either in your flower bed or a garden. Uh, Because you'll learn all sorts of stuff about spiritual growth. When you see weeds uh, that will just never go away and you pick them and they come back. Or you try to dig something up with unbelievable root system. uh, And uh, these aspects of spiritual growth are very evident in any kind of horticulture. Uh, and Jesus often uses references uh, to things that are growing. But, you know, you think about some, some trees and some plants, they're just rapidly growing, right? You know, you plant them and then they're, they're just sprouted and they're, you know, they're huge. And you think about bamboo, it's really fast growing, at least some species of it. And, you know, uh, sometimes it'll grow 40 feet in a year. And as Americans, we love that kind of stuff. Like, give me some 40-foot growth in a year. You know, like we can see it, it's tangible, we plant it, we see it, we got it. But that slow growing stuff, you know, the, the tree that you can't even tell if is it growing until you look back at old pictures from seven years ago and you're like, yeah, that tree's growing. You know, the, the slow growth, the the incremental, small little bits at a time, that drives us nuts. Because it's difficult to wait, Uh, it's difficult to continue to care for something, especially when you don't see immediate evidence that it's working or being helpful. Yet, you know, without that endurance or without that time, we wouldn't have magnificent forest, we wouldn't have oak trees, we wouldn't have uh, these things uh, that we see. And I think that same premise comes to spiritual growth as well. Because you think about the book of Acts, And I don't know about you, but you get this feeling in the book of Acts that it's this rapid fire, Paul, city to city to city to city. You know, it's kind of like that fast-growing tree. He stops off, he sees explosive growth in a city, and it's off, and he's on to the next city. Well, oftentimes that is true in the book of Acts, but it's not always true. Here in this part of the book of Acts, we get to that slow growth. And it's often hard to see when we're thinking about Acts because it's so rapid fire. But Paul here is camping out. And in this, we see Paul's persistent witness. This persistent witness where he... Doesn't just show up in rapid growth and he takes off. He is here for some time. Look at verses 8 through 10. Uh, so he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning, persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn... Uh, And continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And so for three months he shows up in the synagogue and they obviously allowed uh, that to occur. He spent time there debating and reasoning of the things of God. Three months there in the synagogue until opposition rose against him and people started to speak against him. So he departs from the synagogue and goes to this hall, the Hall of Tyrannus. That's a guy's name. It actually means tyrant, so not totally sure uh, what that means, if he's the owner, if he was the teacher. But anyway, this this hall that Tyrannus either runs or owns uh, is where Paul ends up next. It was a lecture hall, and he spends two years there, So in this book of Acts, in this rapid fire book where it feels city to city, he spends, well, three months and then two years on top of that. In verse 22, as you look later, you'll see that he was also there for a while. Some versions uh, translate it a little bit longer. Uh, And so if you add up two years plus three months plus a little bit longer, whatever that means, um, that's where most people end up at three years of his ministry in Ephesus. Paul even says later as he's leaving Ephesus, Um, His ministry over the last three years uh, had been uh, with them. So he stayed in Corinth for upwards of two years. He stayed in Ephesus for about three years. Uh, That doesn't feel like stop off, you know, drop off the message of the gospel and take off. That is Paul now planting deep roots in these churches. And you think about the, the, especially Ephesus and all of what has flowed out of that church and the ministry there, uh, you know, he, he stayed there. He spent consistent time reasoning and debating, and he did not cease from that verse in chapter 20, verse 31, he did not cease night or day to warn them, oftentimes with tears, he said. So there's this sense where, where Paul has this persistent, continual witness before this city. Well, uh, what is the city of Ephesus? Well, wh- you know, it was the fourth largest city of, of the Roman Empire, but it was also a pagan city. It was a pagan city devoted to, uh, there was a huge temple, one of the seven wonders of the world. It was a temple to Artemis, uh, who was the goddess of fertility, she was a, a, a goddess to sexuality. And so that was what the, one of the things this city worshipped. So, so Paul spends two, uh, upwards of three years in this city speaking in the midst of that. And what does he speak? Well, he spends initially those first three months, I don't think his message changed, but they talk to him, he talked to them about what? The phrase, the kingdom of God. And uh, so the kingdom of God, that's the rule and the reign of Jesus, that he has not only come as savior, he has come as king. I think a lot of us love to see Jesus as our savior, saves us from our sins and gives us a ticket into heaven and to glory forever, but he has come as king. He has come to rule us and to rule all things. He's come to set everything right. And as a king, he comes as the victor. And I don't think we tend to think about uh, God or Jesus in those ways. We think of dying on the cross and raising the dead from the dead for our sins. But he came as the king that will conquer all things. He came as the one who would bring victory. Hence, the kingdom of God. Yes, he would save his people, but also he would set all wrongs of this world right again. And we're going to see what that looks like in a second as we keep going. So the kingdom of God is a part of this persistent witness, but also the word of the Lord. Look at verse 10. So this continued for two years, that's in the hall of Tyrannus, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Look at verse 20, which sums up our passage that we read. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So he's speaking about the kingdom of God, but he is proclaiming the word of God. The, the sentence that, uh, that concludes our part in verse 20, this is the fifth time in the book of Acts that, that Luke, or the writer of Acts, sums up a section by noting the progress of the word. Meaning the word is proclaimed, it is taking root in people's lives, it is changing cities, it is changing the course of human history. The word of God is taking root and growing and increasing. But what's interesting is that this phrase, the word of God or the word of the Lord, interchangeable in the book of Acts, it's used 20 times in the book of Acts, so there's five that, uh, so far that have noted progress and kind of like uh, ending different sections of the book of Acts. But the, the, the phrase the word of the Lord is used 20 times in this book. And one writer, G.K. Beale points out that this probably has its roots uh, in, in, in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. And then if you're reading Isaiah... It's fully developed in verses 40 to 55 as this concept of the word of the Lord is played out. But in Isaiah 2, you'll see, you'll hear this refrain that Acts is now becoming a fulfillment of in Christ. Acts uh, or Isaiah uh, Isaiah 2, verses 2 to 3, that it shall come to pass in the latter days. This is a prophecy of what will come. In the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established at the highest highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say... Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, this is what the nations are saying, and that we may walk in his paths. Here's the culminating verse. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That the prophecy is that the word of the Lord will flow out of Jerusalem to the ends of the earth and the nations. And here's Acts. Remember that that the gospel will flow out from Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here we see some of the fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy in chapter 2, that the word of the Lord is going out from Jerusalem to all nations. But what's interesting, not only the kingdom of God, not only the word of the Lord, but also this concept of the way. Did you see, did you catch that it was capitalized? Uh, and so what, in verse 10, these people started speaking evil of the way. So wh- what, what's going on? Speaking evil uh, against the way was uh, Was actually the name given to the people of God in this time. So they were speaking evil against the people, meaning the group called the way, but they were also speaking against the message because who else is called the way in John 14? Jesus says, I am the way. So he not only are speaking against this group of people called the way, but also against the message of the gospel. The the way has become the name of the Christian church, and it's noted about six times in the book of Acts. This is the second one, and it's also mentioned later in our pass in chapter 19. Uh, But G.K. Beale, that the same one that pointed out that Isaiah two is being fulfilled here, sees the idea of the way being fulfilled from Isaiah forty. Isaiah 40, what's going on in Isaiah 40? This is the promise of restoration to God's people. And in verse 3, that a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So Beel goes, goes out to point that this is the way of Israel's restoration; that it is the message of the gospel; that it is the word of God; that it is not just restoring God's people, but restoring all things. And so, evil uh, speaking evil against the way is the people of God, the message of the gospel against Jesus Himself, bringing all things right. What's interesting is that idea of restoration is the very next verses in Isaiah. Isaiah 40, verse 3, prepare the way of the Lord. Verses 4 and 5, listen to this, that every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, and uneven ground shall become level, and rough places become a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed in all flesh, meaning everybody on the earth shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." And so to speak evil of the way uh, is to speak against uh, the rule and the reign of Jesus. But it's interesting, who also uh, was, uh, was um, prophesied in Isaiah 40 uh, is John the Baptist, okay? Remember that because for our next—for uh, the—, the Coming passages in a second, we're going to see that these people held to the baptism of John, not understanding Jesus. They didn't understand the full fulfillment of what was promised. So here's Paul with a persistent witness to these people. Three years, the kingdom of God, the word of the Lord, and uh, the idea of um, seeing the, the way and the way of restoration that God has brought about. But also we see a powerful witness Okay, so um, I added this just because it didn't rightly fit in any of those two points that the powerful witness that was here, that this passage is about power. Not just a spoken word, but a spoken word that comes with power and the power of God. That this is the powerful witness. You know, in that passage from 11 to 17, we see, uh, we see sorcery, we see exorcists, we see these people trying to invoke even the name of Jesus uh, and against evil spirits that were residing. This passage is about power. And so, Uh, What's interesting is that Luke notes in verse 11 that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Let me submit to you that all miracles are extraordinary. (laughs) And so for him to like kind of note extraordinary, extraordinary things, like... Like, this is pretty marvelous stuff that was going on. It was like, really? You know, and that's where they get the idea of a handkerchief, even touching Paul and being taken to somebody was healing disease and driving out evil spirits. The, this was extraordinary works of God against the spiritual forces of evil. So what was going on in Ephesus? So it was a pagan city, remember, temple of Artemis, the goddess of of, uh, fertility and sexuality, but also magic was a deep part of Ephesian culture. So a number of um, uh, magical uh, papyrus um, and... uh, from, from that ancient world have been discovered, and they consisted of various spells and that often would invoke names of foreign gods to, uh, to cast spells on people and to invoke the, the move of foreign gods. So the, these papyrus were found and um, oftentimes even wording of the Old Testament was used. Uh, because it would sound exotic to the Greeks and the Romans of that day. So, uh, you know, the one spell reads, I, abj- I abjure thee by Jesus, the God of the Hebrews. And again, we even see that quoted here, that they're, uh, th- that they're trying to move evil spirits by the name of Jesus. Okay, Another you know, of those papyruses that they found from Ephesus re- reads, Hail, God of Abraham. Hail, God of Isaac. Hail, God of Jacob. Jesus Christus, Holy Spirit, Son of the Father. It was this syncretistic, uh, th- this, uh, this um, sense where there was multiple gods, multiple spirits, and they were, they were, the magic artists, the sorcerers, the exorcists were trying to call on these, and it was very much a part of the culture of Ephesus. Okay? I don't say that to freak us out. I just say that, that if that's what's going on in the culture, how would the gospel move in there if it did not come with power that would say, no, 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 Jesus is king. And Jesus reigns over evil, that even the evil spirits that you try to move. They were plying their trade, and so they even tried to, uh, try to cast a spell in Jesus' name to which the demon responds. Uh, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but Joker, who are you? And he jumps on them. And, and, and even the humil- humiliation that, ex- that flows out of that, that they flee out of the house naked and wounded. Well, nakedness in that culture was abhorrent. And it was the height of a social shaming. And so for, for, that, uh, for them to run out, it was complete and utter humiliation. Look at verse 17, after that humiliation, meaning Jesus supersedes and conquers the evil spirit, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, in fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. What these people saw was the power and the kingship of Jesus. So it was a powerful witness, not just a persistent witness, but what flows out of that is a transformed life. So uh, a transformed life. So let me submit to you this, that the idea of Jesus and belief in Jesus or faith in Jesus is the beginning point of faith. Absolutely. That Jesus comes in and regenerates, gives us a heart that can actually understand and seek after God, and then faith flows in in, uh, return of that, but it's not merely faith that Jesus is your Savior, because Jesus is Lord as well. And so, when you confess Jesus as your Savior, and you confess Jesus as your Lord, you will be saved, the scriptures say. But if Jesus is your Lord, if he is your Lord, what ought to show up in your life is transformation. Because you no longer live for yourself, you live for him who by his blood purchased you with his life. Remember that song that we just sang a little bit ago, Come As You Are? Okay, so let's be very clear what that is speaking to. Come as you are. The mess, the brokenness, the rebellion, the evil, the sorcery. You can come before the holy and righteous God because of Jesus. You don't have to clean yourself up to get to him. You can come to him and find his grace and his forgiveness. That's the amazing truth of the gospel. You can come as you are, yet God does not ever leave you as you are. And our culture wants to say, I can come as I am and you're going to leave me where I am. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus says you come, you don't clean yourself up to come, you come as a beggar and you find the grace of God. But in that, you are transformed by the grace and the power of God. What ought to show up in God's people if you have faith in Christ, what ought to show up is a transformed life by the power of God. <laughs> we see this at the beginning of 19. We see this with these, uh, in, in verses 2 through 6. In the beginning of chapter 19, so Paul shows up and he finds a group of disciples. Now, I'm going to submit to you that these, these men uh, did not have true abiding understanding of faith. Disciples, meaning they were kind of seeking, but yet they did not know the living God, because um, they are different than Apollos, who is just at the end of chapter 18. Remember, we looked at Apollos, and that he only knew the baptism of John. Remember that? yet he was instructed in the way of the Lord and he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So, yes, he only understood John's baptism, but he understood the things of the Lord and he understood and accurately taught the things of Jesus. That's not what we're dealing with here in in verse 19. Though I will submit to you, many commentators um, are kind of all over the map as to what's going on here. I'll give you my take. Because John's disciples would most definitely have been acquainted with the baptism that leads to repentance. That was John's baptism. If you're looking for a a reference and understanding, it's Luke chapter 3 is where uh, this comes of that. But also, he speaks that that the Spirit will be poured out as well. It's not just a gospel of repentance, not just that Jesus is coming, but John also spoke of, and this is John the Baptist, spoke of uh, the spirit that would be poured out so john's disciples they would they they would have been aware of jesus they would have been aware of the spirit uh, but these what what did they say we didn't even know there was a holy spirit we didn't even know that there was a holy spirit uh, and in a sense, they were lacking what John's entire life was about. John the Baptist, his entire role was to be a forerunner and one who would point to Jesus, the Messiah who is coming, the Messiah that was Jesus. And so a true disciple of John was, was one who would confess Jesus as Lord. Because that's the one who John heralded. So I would submit to you, uh, along with you know, many different uh, commentators, that the real deficiency of these 12 men, as noted in verse 6, was not their baptism. It was much more serious that they failed to recognize Jesus as the one who, had, who John had proclaimed that, that he was the one who was the promised Messiah. They were not instructed like Apollos. And so when they come to understand, in verse 4, John baptized with repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. When they heard that, it wasn't just a baptism of repentance, but you're supposed to believe on Jesus. Verse 5, on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Jesus. They, in a sense, they, they understand, they believe, they trust in Christ, and they're baptized. Uh, and, uh, but then what happens in verse 6, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Here's a danger with this passage. A danger with this passage is using these first six verses as a proof text of uh, the second blessing of the Holy Spirit. The second blessing of the Holy Spirit, that you receive Christ and then later comes the Holy Spirit on you. That it's a later stage of regeneration. Uh, I would be very careful, very careful uh, to, to see that that is what's coming out of that and to base an entire experience of the Holy Spirit around this passage. Because did they even know Christ or not? I would submit to you that they probably did not um, and uh, that there was a deficient understanding of who Jesus was and that was the growth in this passage, not necessarily that they were lacking the Spirit because he would come later. But what happens to these people? So they come to understand Christ, then we see that little, uh, those, those verses about the sorcerers and all that stuff. What happens later in this passage is we see the life of transformation. We see that lordship starts to take root in these people. Look at verse 18 and following to 20. As many as those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So remember, we, we said you don't have to clean yourself up to come to Jesus. These people were practicing magic arts and sorcery. And they came to know Christ. What happened after that? Verse 18. Those who were now believers, they confessed and they divulged themselves of their practices. The change of behavior followed belief. And that's the good news of the gospel. Many people think change of behavior precedes belief. Clean yourself up and then you can be in the kingdom. No, God welcomes you into his kingdom and then all of a sudden we start to see transformation show up. They, they basically put away for things that, that were against the will of God. That, so what did they do? They took these magic books, these, these magical papyrus with spells and incantations and all of that and they burned them. How much was burned? 50,000 pieces of silver uh, in that day, that was a drachma, um, and a drachma was a day's wage for a laborer. So 50,000 days wages, okay, just kind of take a real conservative day's wage. On our scale, this would amount to about 6 to $8 million worth of stuff that they burned because it was against and opposite of the will of God. That is some gospel transformation. They come to know and understand the the beauty of grace. They understand the forgiveness that's been given to them. They understand the living God, that that he is king, and what he says we submit to, we do it gladly. And six to eight million dollars worth of stuff got burned because it was abhorrent before God. Remember, there's only between 2 and 400,000 people total in this city. So this is a I mean like a life's savings that was against the will of God and that they said, "You know what? This doesn't honor him." Sure, I could probably sell this for something, but they burn it because it was abhorrent before the Lord. The Ephesians when they abandon these things, this is not just some pious uh, activity. This was them sacrificing, in quotes, uh, kind of putting uh, their, their former life before God and saying, I, I, I surrender it all to you. These ancient books, any ancient book was expensive. A magical ancient book was like a premium. And, uh, but the word of God bore fruit more and more as people responded to Paul's preaching, that persistent witness and the power of the Spirit, but also the witness of these Ephesians. Can you imagine the cultural shock that like, people are like, what are they doing? Like, they're putting the most valuable thing in our culture just out that their example and their, their sense of what it is to follow Jesus, that public burning of those magical books The next verse, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So let me ask you a question. Do you find yourself, uh, thinking of that idea of persistence, do you find yourself frustrated if things don't take root immediately? And I think God is saying just, you know, this was the life of Paul. This is how the gospel and and the church advanced is he spent three years with these people. Night and day, warning them, he said, oftentimes with tears. If you haven't seen the gospel take root in a friend or a family member or kids or whomever, maybe even your own heart, after a couple of years, God, God's saying, keep on. Because it's the power of God and his timing, how he chooses to work. But also, is there real gospel transformation in your life? Now, you're saying, hey, I've got no magic arts in my, in my house you know, I'm not a sorcerer, uh, you know, so I'm doing pretty well. Well, all that was was culture. So people in Ephesus practiced magic arts. That was part of who they were. And so these people were right in line with the culture of the day. So I ask you, where do you look more like the world or more like the culture around us rather than what Jesus is calling us to, to be and to live? The gospel ought transform us. Not so that we can kind of prove ourselves, but Jesus, your king, your Lord, and I surrender everything to you. What would you want to be changed and transformed and looked more and more after your likeness? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would uh, come in our midst and God, that you, by your spirit, uh, your word would go out with power, that, Father, people in this room, if they have never come to trust in you, God, that today would be the day of salvation, that they would trust in you knowing that they don't have to fix themselves up to come to you, but, God, that they come in the broken mess that they are and they lay their lives before you, Father, that they might find your grace. Father, for those uh, in this room and myself that, that believe and profess faith in Christ, God, I pray that you would continue to transform us. Help us to see the power of the Spirit that is at work. And God, I pray that we would not shrink back when we don't see evidence of it, but also, God, that you would continue to help us see what are the transformation, uh, the transformational aspects of our life that, uh, that, that you would long to see show up. God, where do we look more like culture uh, than like what your word calls us to? Jesus, you are king. And we surrender all to you and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.